Welcome to the Business Resilience Decoded podcast, brought to you by Asfalis Advisors and the Disaster Recovery Journal. Crisis management in today's world is ever-changing, and this podcast is our commitment to help you navigate successful outcomes for any crisis you may face. I'm your host, Vanessa Matthews. I specialize in providing insights and solutions for crisis, continuity, and resilience across industries from real estate and healthcare to terrorism in the airline and transportation worlds. No matter what industry you're in, this podcast will provide you the tools to build resilience in your organization. Welcome back to another episode of the Business Resilience Decoded podcast. Today, I am super excited. We're going to be talking to Ken Horst. He is the Assistant Director of Emergency Management with the University of Alabama. And the episode title for today is Protective Measures for Tornadoes and Best Practices. Before we dive in, I want to share a few resilience resources and reminders. We're super excited that our Four Corners uh, newsletter has launched. Um, There's a lot lot of exclusive content that you guys can find. So please go ahead and um, sign up at bit.ly slash brd4, F-O-U-R, Corners. In Disaster Recovery Journal News, DRJ does webinars every Wednesday, and there's also some upcoming conferences. So please be sure to check out their website and our show notes. And in Asphalus News, The Road to Resilience, and our five-step crisis strategy guide can be accessed uh, for you for free to access and to figure out how can you run and navigate any business through any crisis in any industry. You can find that link at bit.ly slash the number five step crisis. And lastly, if you have enjoyed our podcast, uh, we've grown to over 28,000 and counting downloads. We're super excited. So please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps us to know that we're adding value. And it also helps more practitioners just like you to be able to find this information. So without further ado, Ken, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you. Looking forward (laughs) to our time together. Me too. So for those of you in the audience and who are listening, I met Ken um, in a in South Carolina in Charleston at uh, the International Association of Emergency Managers Regional Conference. And ironically, my husband's from Montgomery, Alabama, and uh, we're a War Eagle household. So when I saw Alabama, <laughs> it was we had a natural affinity. <laughs> Right. So I'm super excited. Um, He did a great presentation and we're going to really give him some time today to expand on the work that he's doing in Alabama. So to kick us off, Ken, can you share with our listeners more about you and your background? Sure. So uh, my career started in the fire service um, and uh, spent 30 years in the fire service with uh, a total of two different departments. Uh, Through that time frame, one of the things that uh, And I didn't have a college degree. I mean, I was essentially a trade industry. And it was interesting um, back, oh, it's been 30 years ago now, I had a a captain tell tell me we were talking about the future of the fire service. And he said, Ken, one day, uh, if uh, uh, for individuals to be a chief officer, they're going to have to have a degree. And I thought, hmm, that's interesting. And so as I progressed up through the the ranks, I had the opportunity to take part in a leadership Tuscaloosa, which is a a 40 uh, individuals across the spectrum and, and, and talk about leadership and being leaders in your local community. And the very last day, the question was raised, if time or money were not an issue, what would you do? And the very first thing I thought about was a degree. 
And so I talked with my family, et cetera, uh, ended up coming to the university. Uh, of course, I live in Tuscaloosa, but uh, to get a degree in um, administration. And so did that, had some opportunities along the way to look at uh, some, some uh, chief positions, uh, but uh, there was not a green light on both ends. Sometimes there was a red light on mine, sometimes on their end. And, and so at the end of the day, uh, the opportunity came for me to transition into emergency management with the University of Alabama. And uh, so 10 and a half years later, here I am. Nice. So I'm literally sitting here thinking like if time or money were not an issue for me, I wouldn't work. <laughs> I would buy an island. <laughs> I love the water. And I would give my husband his wish of four children because then I'll have to work on that. <laughs> So I love that, but you picked education. Like, I, well, I, I had four that. sons at that time, so I didn't need the four children. <laughs> <laughs> Hilarious. So one of the things that really drew me into wanting to do this interview with you is um, I experienced what I call the perfect storm, where I was in the middle of a tornado with wind speeds exceeding 135 miles per hour that picked up my car while I was inside and totaled it. And so um can you share your background on that tornado that hit Tuscaloosa in April of 2011? I'm so interested in this story. So my chief at that time was actually recovering from open heart surgery. And so I, I was technically, my, my title at the time was deputy chief of operations, but I was also serving uh, to a certain degree in the role of acting chief with I mean, it wasn't a, a particular appointment, but some of the responsibilities uh, that he he had as, as a chief, such as attending council meetings and all that kind of thing, uh, fell into my responsibility. But on that particular day, uh, the National Weather Service Storm Prediction Center had been saying this is a, a high impact day. Um, and so we had made preparations 10 days earlier. We had an EF3 uh, tornado in, in Tuscaloosa, did a lot of roof damage, trees down, et cetera. Um, five days before that, we had a gust front to come through that had uh, winds in excess of 80 miles an hour. So again, we had wind damage. Uh, we were familiar with tornadoes. And so that day, uh, I, again, we started preparing. We got additional tarps. We got nails to help, you know, dry things in. We sharpened chainsaws, fueled vehicles, all those preparation things that we thought would, would be uh, beneficial. Um, and that morning, uh, there was a EF3 tornado that went through a neighboring community, uh, but the, uh, um, they kept telling us this is not the event. And then so about uh, 450, that day, uh, we had a warm storm for a supercell just uh, to the southwest of Tuscaloosa, which ultimately impacted uh, the rest of our lives. Mm. So during the time of that incident, you were with the Fire and Rescue Service. And then in December right, of um, that same year, that's when you joined the, the, the university. That is so, correct. Uh, what was that event like from your perspective outside of the university view? Sure. So my, my re for the next several weeks specifically was all about response and, and uh, the initial response. Mm -hmm. So it was doing rescue, medical treatment, uh, clearing roads, uh, doing, uh, we ended up doing a lot of uh, what I would consider volunteer work with helping homeowners, et cetera, move debris, recover furniture because they were, they were in structures, et cetera. So it was a lot of um, 
work in helping our community recover. And by the way, uh, here's my perspective from a city employee at that time. So our emergency management office was the first thing, our emergency management office and EOC was the first thing that was hit and collapsed. Uh, the, the public safety uh, dispatch tower was taken out. Fire station number four was taken out. My responsibility, my personnel. Um, the Salvation Army was taken out. The Red Cross offices were taken out. The city's water system was greatly impacted. So I had to think about all of those things that took out 12% of the city of Tuscaloosa. However, at the same time, there's 88% that life is continuing. I mean, they had to make adjustments, et cetera. So how do you coordinate a major disaster response while at the same time taking care of those heart attacks, seizures, diabetics, falls, car accidents, whatever you have that's ha happening in the rest of the town or rest of the city, how do you manage all of those together with the workforce that you have? And so that was my perspective and I was totally immersed in that. Um, the university actually helped us uh, from a perspective is it was during dead week when this occurred and the university made a decision, a policy decision that we're going to suspend classes. Uh, everybody go home. They did not hold graduation that spring. Um, and your grade was your grade. And if you had a, uh, were a borderline, for example, you had maybe a 78 average and you needed to make an 84 on a final exam so you could have a B. I'm just using that as an example. You could work something with your professor and, and do it virtually or remotely relative to the exam. And so the university, because of all those people, those 30,000 students moving out and graduation not happening, it decreased the demands on the city for city services. Mm. You didn't have water for all those people, you know, flushing commodes. And so it, it, it helped with the water. Uh, all the parents that were coming in for graduation, now those rooms at those hotels were open for volunteers to be able to come in uh, and, and, and volunteers and other rescue folks to come in. So that was really helpful. That was my perspective, uh, but it was totally focused immediately on response. Yeah. There's a great Homeland Security journal that talks about the qualitative analysis of um, uh, lessons learned and do we truly learn these uh, lessons and one thing that is a common theme in every disaster is communication and so as they dive deeper one thing that they found is well why does communication fail it's the infrastructure that we need that typically fails and so in your example right your eoc the people that you depend on the, the resources that are there uh you didn't have that as an option and so that <laughs> you know it, it, it's like okay well, now what's my plan B? What's my plan C? <laughs> right. Redundancy is absolutely needed. <laughs> so, well, and, and the other aspect about that is the, the infrastructure. And you mentioned cell towers. All of those are taken out. Electricity is taken out. And so one of the things, you know, individuals whose cell phone may have worked, they can't recharge them because the city was without power for three days. So, again, how do you have uh, communication? So to that point, what do you think made this particular tornado so catastrophic? Well, number one, uh, wind speeds of 190 miles an hour, an EF4 approach, uh, approaching an EF5, uh, the size of it. It's a half a mile wide at its narrow point, 
up to a mile and a half wide. So when you take a six mile path through the center of, of Tuscaloosa that impacts so many of those uh, essential services that, that I talked about, uh, then, then that it has an impact. 1,100 folks woke up in the morning without a place to go to work. So immediately you lose jobs. Now you lose pay, you know, uh, tax revenue because those businesses aren't open. They're not collecting taxes. Um, and, and so it, it created a huge impact from a standpoint. And, and the city had a uh, recovery operations where they actually had their incident command uh, that was set up ahead of time uh, their, their incident command room, they eventually uh, transitioned into recovery and it lasted two years. And so uh, it, it, it was one of those things that, that from a standpoint of impact, how do you build back all those infrastructures? There's zoning issues that have to be addressed. There, there are, you know, uh, buildings that were damaged. Now you can't, build the same building back because they were grandfathered in from 50 years ago, parking lots, all those kind of things are, are huge issues that have to be overcome. Uh, and so it made, made a major impact on the city. Not, not counting individuals with every time a tornado, a watch comes up, is this going to be like April 27th? And that still lasts. <laughs> mm. So as we wrap up, last question for you. Um, what protective measures have been added to your preparedness plans to help you all mitigate tornado disasters in the future? Sure. So specifically at the University of Alabama, when I transitioned over, the, the concept is that the university takes the role of a parent. And so parents, when they send their children, their student, let me rephrase that, to the university for an education, they are assuming that the university will do what they can protect their child. Mm -hmm. uh, and so as a result of that, the university, uh, the first thing we did when I, I came on board was we put together an interdisciplinary team of myself from emergency management, somebody from environmental health and safety to look at access issues, et cetera, and a construction engineer. And we evaluated every single building on campus and identified what is the best location in that building to take refuge in the event of a uh, tornado. So uh, FEMA has a document, it's an old document from 2009, uh, FEMA 431, that identifies, and, and it looked specifically at schools, uh, uh, was a, a K-12 specifically for them. But we took some of those principles out of that for what we call best available refuge area, or BARA, and we identified that and posted those locations in every single building on campus. So uh, another th thing with the city of Tuscaloosa was that tornado took out their entire environmental services fleet. Well, we have a bus fleet. We have a, a, an internal bus fleet to move uh, people around campus. So how are we going to protect our bus fleet? How are we going to protect the university's fleet? And so we begin to make plans on how to do that. Uh, and then we begin to look at some long-term uh, solutions that involve a lot of capital, a lot, you know, and time in building infrastructure. And so at that time, we did not have a single FEMA 361 rated storm shelter. Mm -hmm. Since that time, we now have eight. Uh, we will have another one open this fall. We have another one that is being built. And those 
storm shelters will withstand wind up to 250 miles an hour. And, and so now we can protect 18,000 people inside our storm shelters. And so that, but again, those are expensive to take plans, how to implement them, et cetera. So those were some of the things that we did relative to um, some immediate, uh, again, lo low hanging fruit. One of the uh, individuals that worked in emergency management uh, went and got a meteorology degree. Uh, again, to help be able to do that. We looked at messaging. What can we do relative to messaging? We looked at, at uh, some old technology. We put a business, low wattage business radio station in our emergency operations center uh, that, that is kind of like a national park radio. You, you go on, you, hey, today in the, at, you know, at the ranger station, we're doing this. Well, we have a lot of that with information about the university, where's parking, what's, what are you doing on game day, uh, the history of the million dollar band, all those kind of things. But in an emergency or after an emergency, an individual that can't charge their cell phone can turn the radio on and listen to a low wattage FM radio station to get that emergency. So we begin to, uh, to look at various things that we could do, multiple ways to, to, uh, uh, to message and, and, and get both warning uh, message out, but also recovery message. So those are some of the things that, that, uh, that we've done uh, in addition to a lot of education and, and uh, making sure individuals are, are aware of it and, and promoting the, the various things for tornado safety. Yeah, I was just doing a presentation to Charlotte City Council this week and I talked about proactive organizations like what you just described uh, and the difference between reactive organizations and in my everyday role as chief resilience officer right we work with those two types of organizations but you can see the benefit and their return on the value of what you're providing to the institution or to the organization by the things that you talked about and just thinking outside the box to really you know consider what are all the things that we can do to make this a better environment for the people but also to to, to give them information as quickly as we can in real time to save lives so uh, I don't live in Alabama, but I can appreciate the work that you do. So thank you. <laughs> well, I appreciate it. You know, it's interesting. We have uh, individuals from other institutions come to Alabama and say, how, how did you do this? And, and again, I said, well, the first thing is you probably didn't have a tornado, an EF4 run through your town. Uh, and so there was a lot of things that because of that, it, it provided the, uh, the motivation to be, be really proactive uh, to make sure that we're doing what we can to, to uh, protect our students. Yeah. Absolutely. So how can our subscribers and listeners find you and keep up with the work that you're doing? Number one, I, my email address is uh, kenneth.d.horst at ua.edu. Uh, or another easy way you can find is uh, our office website is ready dot ua dot edu and it will also have contact information in there you can see a lot about what we're doing uh, we have uh, i'm biased but i think a fairly robust website uh, with a lot of information uh, there uh, if they're really interested in the university of alabama and what's going on uh, they could download our safety app uh, ua safety included in that uh, are push notifications for ua alerts and national weather service alerts for tuscaloosa county uh, it has our Twitter feed in there. Uh, you can actually stream 92.5 UA Info Radio on that. Uh, again, we try and make ourselves available, uh, and I am I am open to, uh, to discussing and talking uh, prevention, mitigation, uh, 
that's uh, because of my job in the fire service. I hate to use the term fun, but the adrenaline rush was fighting fire. But the devastation that fire causes on family, it is much better to the fire have never been prevent, uh, have never happened. And so the dollars spent in prevention have a much better return from a, a, a social economic standpoint than making that fire response. It doesn't get a lot of news. It doesn't hit the highlight reels, but at the end of the day, it has a bigger impact. Yeah, awesome. Well, Ken, thank you for joining the podcast. Sure. Thank you for listening to the Business Resilience Decoded podcast brought to you by Asphalus Advisors and Disaster Recovery Journal. Make sure you check out the show notes for this episode to see all the upcoming events, programs, and ways we can support you. Make sure you subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts, leave us a review, and share it with a friend. Thanks again, and I'll talk to you in the next episode.